On January 5th, the U.N.'s Food and Agricultural Organization announced that in the previous month, its food price index had hit an all-time high. As food prices have risen, so has the number of people unable to afford basic nutrition staples. Joining me now for a look at the impact that rising food prices are having around the world and how they may be connected to the discontent we've been seeing in the Arab world is Lester Brown, the president of the Earth Policy Institute and author of World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse, which is published by Norton. I'm very pleased to welcome Mr. Brown to today's underreported segment. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Uh, just a quick note. The, um, <clears throat> the report that you just cited, the FAO um, World Food uh, Index, is at an all-time high in uh, December. Um, they've just announced today that that record has been broken in January has gone still higher. Wow. What's so, been, the, so what's been driving up food prices over the past few months? Well, food, food supplies, grain supplies are, are sort of tight right now. We had a, um, um, a reasonably tight situation, and then came the, uh, um, the, the heat wave in Russia and the drought that shrunk their crop from close to 100 million tons down to 60 million tons. They had fires as well. Mm-hmm. They had fires for weeks. I mean, the country was burning out of control. And um, um, so a country that had been, uh, uh, you know, the number of three or four wheat exporter last year has actually become a grain importer this year, uh, importing mostly feed grains to keep their, their cattle going because there was no hay produced uh, to speak of last summer. But that's happened in the past. I remember during the Soviet years uh, they became uh, – major importers of American wheat, and it didn't uh, drive up prices the way we're seeing them go up now. Is is there something else happening? Is it because the whole year, 2010, was the hottest year on record around the world? Well, the, um, that was certainly a factor. But <clears throat> the thing that's changed now from um, the last half of the last century, when you referred, for example, to the Soviet Union, is that Back then, most of the second half of the last century, we had in the United States a very substantial amount of land held out of production under the so-called commodity set-aside programs. And so at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, when there was a, um, a downturn in production and a surge in prices, we would simply calculate how, how many million acres we needed to bring, bring back into production next year, and things would quickly settle down. So they were very temporary sort of things. We don't have that reserve anymore. We're, we're sort of flat out now. Um, so we, we lack that, um, that reserve, and when, when things begin to... Uh, to tighten up, as they are partly because of increased climate volatility, um, we can get in, in, in trouble in a hurry. Well, food prices also spiked a few years ago. Did similar factors drive that rise in prices? It was weather the, to blame that time as well? What's, what's new now is that the, uh, the food price increases that occurred from time to time during the last half of the last century were event-driven a monsoon failure in India, a drought in in the former Soviet Union, or what have you. What we now have is a trend-driven rise in prices. So when prices went up in 07 and 08, um, it was tightening supplies, and then they subsided somewhat, but never went back to the historical um, level. But now they're tightening again and going up again. And among the trends on the demand side are population growth, 
There will be 219,000 people at the dinner table tonight who were not there last night. Um, it's rising affluence. There are probably 3 billion people in the world trying to move up the food chain, consuming more grain-intensive livestock, livestock and poultry products. And then the third source of demand, and this is uh, the newest one, is the uh, the massive diversion of grain into the production of fuel for cars. Mm -hmm. um, so we have three sources of growing demand now to cope with each year. And on the supply side, we have tightening water supplies because some 19 countries now are over-pumping their aquifers, which means wells are starting to go dry here and there. We have soil erosion um, as a problem. And then we have climate volatility and the uncertainty associated with that. Because in contrast to the last century, most of the last century, when things tightened up, we knew that they, they would go back to normal. Climate would go back to normal. But there's no norm to go back to now because the, the Earth's climate is a, in a constant uh, state of flux and change, which is why we're getting all these, one of the reasons why we're getting so many of these weird weather events like this monster storm in the U.S. or uh, flooding in Australia, of all places in the world, not to mention the heat wave in, in Russia and the, the, um, <clears throat> the fact that one-fifth of Pakistan was underwater at one point last summer. You point out that in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, where there have been large protests over the past few weeks, the water tables are falling to the point where water is only available every four days. Are countries like Yemen able to do much to address their problems with natural resources? You can't just replenish that water, can you? No, um, you can't. And, and what someone should have been doing years ago was looking at population growth on one hand, water resources on the other, and, and, and attempting to coordinate the two so that the demand for water didn't so overrun the sustainable yield of aquifers that the aquifers would be uh, depleted. And that's what's happening now. Uh, we've seen this even more dramatically in Saudi Arabia, which was self-sufficient in wheat production for more than 20 years. But it was it was producing that wheat by by pumping water from an aquifer that is a fossil aquifer. That is, it does not recharge. And the Saudis announced a few years ago that they're basically going to phase out wheat production. Um, and, uh, um, in fact, most of that phased out is complete. And within another year or two, they'll not be producing any wheat at all and will be totally dependent on the outside world for their grain supplies. But wheat, so, wheat mm -hmm. yields are down around the world, aren't they, <clears throat> including Europe, Russia, and here in the United States, all because of, of water issues? Um, different things in, in different places. Last year's wheat crop worldwide was not, was not a bad crop. It was, it was uh, at least a moderate crop, maybe a little above, despite the, um, the heat wave in, um, in Russia. Right now, as we look ahead at the new year, which is the new crop this year, which is what everyone is doing, um, because it's going to take a very substantial increase in world grain production this year to stabilize things. If we don't get that substantial increase, then it's going to be a, um, it's going to continue to be a very precarious um, um, situation. Is the political instability that we've been seeing around the Middle East and North Africa connected? To the rising food prices that are the result of this? In many cases, it is. And um, 
Um, in looking at Egypt, for example, I mean, the, the protesters uh, are focusing on on getting Mubarak, um, Mubarak out of office. But the, the food issue um, hangs over Egypt because they import such a large amount of their grain. In fact, I think Egypt is currently the world's leading wheat importer, um, having surpassed both Japan and Brazil, which are the other big three wheat importers. But what happened with with Egypt was that a year or so ago, they signed a three-year contract with Russia. I'm sorry, I think it was a five-year contract to supply the Egyptians with three million tons of wheat a year. And and the the ink was hardly dry on that contract before the Russians were announcing that they were embargoing, embargoing all grain exports. And so suddenly, Egypt had to scramble to um, um, replace what they were expecting to get from the uh, from the uh, the Russians beyond that i mean when you think about it egypt either imports grain or it imports water because all the nile water that comes into egypt is is used by the time it gets to the the mediterranean the nile is 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 basically um, almost dry when it reaches the the Mediterranean. But what's is is that because of the Aswan Dam, or has that always been the case? No, it's because of the land grabs. Um, that I mean, Egypt it it basically doesn't rain in Egypt, so the Nile is the lifeline of Egypt. But what's happening now is that the two countries where most of the land grabs are occurring are are the Sudan and Ethiopia, and they are the the upper watershed of the Nile. And the more water that's used for irrigation in those countries, the less there will be um, reaching Egypt that can be used to to um, irrigate um, uh, Egypt's crops. So what we're seeing is these land grabs are also water grabs, by the way. They're always called land acquisitions, but but if you don't get water with the land, it's not um, not really worth very much. So what Egypt is now doing is it, it's getting involved in the land grabs, too, so that it will have access to some of its upstream water that it might otherwise lose to, to someone else. So what the Egyptians are faced with is a highly uncertain, um, uncertain food future. Um, they're they're either dependent on imported grain or imported water, and both are becoming less secure with time. So these these things are in the minds of Egyptians. I mean, they know um, about these uncertainties that are um, that that now hang over their their future. I'm talking with Lester Brown, president of the Earth Policy Institute and author of World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse, which is published by Norton uh, as part of our underreported series. Today we're looking at rising food prices and global uprising. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Well, uh, the population of Egypt and, and Jordan, for that matter, has doubled over the past 20, 30 years. Um, how much is population growth a factor here? Because... Um, Hasn't another th- thing that's happened along the Nile River Basin, hasn't a lot of land that used to be used for agriculture now uh, been taken over to provide more housing? 
Well, there's been um, um, whenever something is built in Egypt, it's usually on the in, in the Nile River basin, and and it often uh, comes at the expense of um, of cropland because it is basically the Nile floodplain where most of Egypt's uh, grain is produced. But population growth is a major factor throughout this part of the world, whether it's North Africa or the Middle East itself. Um, Egypt is probably adding now about a, me- a million and a half people every year to their population of um, of 80 million. Should Mubarak uh, have uh, noticed that and, uh, and instituted policies that might have uh, forestalled some of the problems that we're seeing now? Um, no question. Um, They've, the Egyptians have not um, uh, been outstanding in in their performance on um, the population issue and getting family planning, you know, to to women um, throughout the um, the country. Even though a lot of women want to plan their families, they don't always have access to planning family planning services. And this is true of many countries in in the region. Population growth is um, is rapid. Women are not very well educated. And so childbearing is the is the option that's uh, often uh, open to them, and it's a, it's a it's an issue that that desperately needs to be uh, addressed because almost every country in in North Africa and in the in the uh, Middle East is um, is outrunning its its water supplies. Uh, almost all of the top twenty failing states have rapidly growing populations, but I mentioned Jordan also. Uh, doubling its population over the last 20, 30 years. Protesters there took to the streets to protest rising food prices, among other grievances. And in response, the Jordanian government has created subsidies for livestock and gas for heating and cooking. Can government subsidies keep pace with rising prices? You know, they can try in the short run, but um, in the long run, they're going to have to take more fundamental steps to deal with this issue. What we have to think about is is raising water productivity in a way, launching an international effort to raise water productivity in the same way we, we did with land productivity a half century ago. That earlier effort has now tripled world grain yield per acre. We need to begin thinking about how to dramatically raise the productivity of water. And the world has not yet really addressed that issue in a meaningful way. Uh, Some people have predicted that the next war over resources won't be over oil, but over water. Well, um, it could be, though water wars wars are not as common as one might might think. What happens is that countries that run short on water begin to import water in the form of grain. The reason for that is that it, since it takes a 1,000 tons of water to produce one ton of grain, the most efficient way to import water is in the form of grain. So all the countries in the region now that are short on water are compensating for that by, by importing grain which means they become more and more dependent on outside resources and more and more vulnerable to any disruptions in in world supply for climate or whatever uh, reasons. Are these links between the political situation and climate change evident to all the the governments affected? We have people in the U.S. Congress who deny that there even is such a thing as climate change. What about uh, in... In countries like Egypt or Jordan or India or China, 
Well, the situation is um, is mixed in in many of those countries as it is here. Um, I mean, we have a lot of um, people, the, the scientific community in this country, which is um, uh, uh, very sizable, um, you know, is pretty much of one mind on this. But we've had a, uh, a well-funded disinformation campaign that has succeeded in raising questions in the minds of many people about climate change. I mean, it's a campaign very much like that used by the tobacco industry a few decades ago to to um, question whether, in fact, there was a link between smoking and health or not. Um, so we're basically seeing a replay of that. I don't think it's going to last too long. It, it's it's going to be a situation where people are are faced with rising food prices and they're going to begin asking why. And one of those whys is because of, of climate change. Well, for years, foreign policy experts have centered on <laughs> What happens if oil reserves dry up? Has anyone been thinking about what happens if our resources for food production dry up? No. Um, And one of the things I talk about in World on the Edge is that it looks to me as though the world is going going to be hitting peak oil and peak water at about the same time. In fact, peak water may already be behind us because we're seeing um, shrinking grain harvests now in in a number of countries because of uh, shrinking water supplies. Um, And I just don't think we've given this uh, enough thought. I mean, when you realize that there are 175 million people in India who are being fed with grain produced by overpumping, there are 130 million Chinese who are being fed with grain produced by overpumping, and we know overpumping is, by definition, a short-term phenomenon. But I don't think the world has the systemic thinking to be able to link, you know, underground aquifers and rising temperatures and population growth to food prices. But that's we're beginning to see all of these trends now affect food prices. Is climate change becoming a security issue now? Can that put it, more pressure on the global community to respond in a, a coordinated way, or is, isn't there the political will to do that still at this point? Climate change has for some time been a, a threat to security. We're in the unfortunate position of having inherited a, a definition of security that is almost exclusively military in nature. That's partly because during the last century, um, uh, we had two world wars and a cold war that pretty much dominated the century. But when you look at the real threats to our security today, they are falling water tables, rising temperatures, population growth, and, and then, of course, as a result, rising food prices, growing political instability, an increasing number of failing states. These are the real threats to our security now. It's not some heavily armed superpower that's, that's um, threatening our existence. It's, it's these new trends. And we have, we have lagged behind in redefining security, not just in a con- conceptual sense, but also in, in a fiscal sense in terms of how we use our resources. So is it all bad news? Can we expect to see food prices continue to rise? Uh, is there um, any time in the future when we'll see them come down again? 
Oh, I'm sure they'll they'll come down again. They will fluctuate, but probably um, around a, a rising trend unless we can get our act together and begin to deal with some of the the causal problems like climate change and population growth and and spreading water shortages. If I were to pick three trends to watch to get a sense of where the world is headed and what our future will be like, one would be economic. It would be grain prices. The second would be a social trend, the number of hungry people in the world. And the third would be a political indicator, the number of failing states in the world. That, to me, the latter one is sort of the bottom line indicator. Lester Brown is the president of Earth Policy Institute, a research organization based in Washington. We've been speaking to him there. Um, he's, uh, you can reach them at www.earth-policy.org. His book is called World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse. It's published by Norton. Thank you so much for being with us. Leonard, thank you. 